Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Hey, you guys. This episode of the Other People podcast is brought to you by Rare Bird Books, publisher of the novel Dead Girls by award-winning author Abigail Tartelin. Emily St. John Mandel calls Abigail Tartelin, quote, a fearless writer, end quote. Dead Girls reads like a true crime book. Do you like true crime? If you like true crime, you're going to like Dead Girls. Go get it now wherever good books are sold. Dead Girls by Abigail Tartelin, available now from Rare Bird Books. Hello. 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 How's it going out there? Are you doing okay? This is the Other People Podcast. My name is uh, Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. I have a wonderful episode to share with you today. Mimi Locke is my guest. She has a debut story collection. It is a novella and stories. It is called Last of Her Name, and it is available from Kaya Press. Had a wonderful time with Mimi Locke. She... Uh, is not only an author, she is also uh, the executive director and editor of Voice of Witness, a human rights and oral history nonprofit that she co-founded with Dave Eggers. And uh, it amplifies marginalized voices through books and uh, a national education program. She does good work in the world, and she's an excellent writer. This is a very impressive collection, and I am delighted to share my conversation with Mimi Locke right now. Are you ready? Get in the ready position. This is uh, Mimi Locke, and her debut collection, one more time, is called Last of Her Name. The title story is actually the story that took the longest to write, um, and I think it started as a sort of um, little slice-of-life sketch of two sisters in 80s England, Chinese uh, immigrant sisters in 
80s England painting a house. They have to paint the family house every summer as a chore. And I thought it was going to be a story about rituals and trying to fit in with the rest of the street. And um, and then it, it morphed over time, you know, left it, picked it up, left it, picked it up, and then it ended up being last of her name, um, and uh, which is focused on this Chinese immigrant family in 80s suburbia in England, but also this dual narrative of this mother and daughter when they're both girls. So the, the daughter is 12 years old in 80s England, and um, and then the mother, we meet the mother as a as a girl, an older girl in on the eve of the Japanese occupation of World War Two in Hong Kong, and um, and then uh, and then the most recent story is set in Hong Kong. I think the thread's emerging, right? The theme's emerging. Um, it's set in fifties Hong Kong, and it's sort of this um, star-crossed lover sort of story with this bad girl from the city and this kind of straight straight-up guy from the village, um, and then. I think over time I realized that oh, I'm, I'm writing a lot of stories about family and about love and about um, Chinese people <laughs> and, um, and not necessarily wanting to set out to write stories about immigration and identity and diaspora necessarily, but that's because that's that's sort of my experience. I'm I'm Chinese. I was born and raised in England, moved to Hong Kong after college, lived the last decade plus in the States. So my experience is fractured and scattered. And um, and uh, so I think it's sort of natural that my stories sort of reflect that. And after a certain period of time, I thought, you know what, I want to get these stories together. I feel like they sort of speak to each other somehow. So I put it together in a collection, sent it out. And the collection looks a little bit different from how it was when I when Kaya Press, who's the publisher, when they first took it, um, some stories got cut, some stories got put back in, um, and then some uh, one abandoned story got um, got finished <laughs> during the editing process, which was quite painful. But um, yeah, uh, but yeah, generally, I would say these stories is, 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 is a is a story collection about dysphoric experiences um there are male characters female characters but mostly i would say it's about female inheritance what the histories females uh, women and girls are born into and what they do with that and um and how our lives are um are such a such a combination of chance and what we make of it so um were you, were you publishing any of these stories like independently as the collection was growing? Yeah, um, yeah, bits here and there, bits here and there. Um, Lots of her name um, was published by Nimrod, I think, the year before um, the book got sold, and the, um, the 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 story of a reasonable person about a lonely young wife at a plastics convention that was published. Um, quite a few years ago, and I can't I can't remember about the rest. It's all a bit of a blur, to be honest. Right, right. Yeah. all this work, and you're like, I have no yeah. idea how it happened. It's, it's all to, yeah. It, it feels like a slog, but then also this mysterious miracle that they somehow got finished and that they have found a home out in the world as well. I still can't quite believe it. No, and, you know, it's funny to hear you talk about it. And the thing that, the, the word that occurs to me, uh, as I think about it, is loneliness. Mm-hmm. Like that theme, and like there's a real deep heartache in characters across story, 
an inability to connect Mm -hmm. or a desire to connect. Um, and I relate to it a lot. I I feel a very, I think a lot of us do. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a, a, I think I was thinking about it in anticipation of talking to you for this show. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about the role that this show plays in my life Mm -hmm. as a way to actually connect with other human beings in an unmediated, or I mean, I guess it's kind of mediated because we're, we're talking into microphones, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. to actually have like a, a real conversation with another human being yeah, to try to connect with somebody and then, then to try to, I don't know. It just made me think about that. Yeah. And I felt even though the experiences of the characters geographically and personally are at a remove from my own, like I felt a connection to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I was at, um, Sometimes I get the question, because I'm a Chinese writer, I'm a female writer, sometimes um, I do get the question of this either-or question of, um, uh, why why Chinese stories? Why not something more, quote-unquote, universal? But all that, the culturally specific stuff is context, right? It provides nuance and it provides contours and texture but at the root of it is really universal things like as you say loneliness and yearning yearning to connect and um, a desire to be something other than what you are and um, and so I think you know readers should give themselves more credit if they feel a bit um, I feel I'd sound like I'm trying to sell the book <laughs> sorry you are <laughs> but um but I um you know, sometimes it can be a bit like, oh, I don't know whether I should pick up this book because I don't know anything about this culture. It might be a bit alienating, but um, but I think that the best writers they don't they're not concerned with that. I think the best writers who were quote unquote writing from the margins, they don't worry too much about making their writing accessible in that way. They just trust that if they're writing very specifically and very authentically then and they'll trust that the reader will just be able to slip into their story in the same way they can slip into um, a story by Alice Munro or someone else. And, and by the way, isn't the question, why don't you make this a more down the middle of the road, isn't that kind of a inherently offensive and ridiculous question? It's, uh, I think it's, yeah, well, I think it's a question that, that, um, that doesn't give the whoever's asking that question doesn't give themselves enough credit because I don't think they realize that they actually have much more capacity for imagination and empathy than they actually do I mean I don't I've never seen a dragon but I can get into Game of Thrones you know you don't have to like you know Juno Diaz you don't need to or uh to Amanda you don't need to have lived those experiences to relate to their stories at all well that's the thing like they're they're not giving themselves enough credit but they're also I think overestimating the chasm between peoples of different cultures. Like we're all people. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, we're all going through the same basic emotional. Yeah. It's sort of, yeah, it's, I think it's about, um, holding that balance between recognizing your similarities, but also acknowledging differences as well. So, um, so not to flatten those, um, those differences, but to, but to come to it with a sense of curiosity. Sort of, well, I, the story is about loneliness, but it's set in um, in World War Two in a Chinese village with a farmer's daughter who's learning kung fu. That's I can't re- uh, that's so outside of my experience. But but you do the not fact know that, kung fu. Oh uh, well, I took a few Wing Chun classes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wish, but um, 
but yeah, you you can you can look at that story on the surface, all these sort of external factors, and just think, well, what's that got to do with me? But we know that that character, this is in lot of her name, um, the mother's experience. We know that 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 young girl, she she's trapped in that world and um, trapped by expectations, by this patriarchal. Um, uh, culture that she's born into and she longs to be something else and somewhere else and I think everyone can relate to that so mm. I think another thing that comes to mind is the unknowability of other people yeah like despite wanting to yeah you know connect mm-hmm. like, and even even when somebody lets you in and even when you have like an intimate relationship with somebody it's impossible yeah there's still a lot of mystery yeah like I had a friend of mine it was a while back talking to me about his significant other and saying like, you know, we sort of know everything about one another at this point. And in my head, I was like, really? <laughs> like I've been married for a while. Like, you I, think you know you everything think you know. You know. I was like, I don't think that's possible. I mean, right. I, I get that. I, I understand that as a sentiment. Yeah. Like you can get to a point where it feels sort of boring. Like I, we've mm-hmm. had everything, but the truth is that it's kind of infinite and you really can't know somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Because we don't know ourselves all that well either and so there's things that you betray i don't know this sort of you know that's those those unconscious things those unconscious secrets or multitudes that we all contain um i think i don't know it's so interesting yeah so marriage comes up a lot in this in this collection as well um and um but also and just the the idea of oh there are so many there are so many efforts to understand and get to know someone in a way that feels like okay once i've got to a certain point of intimacy that's it success but people are changing all the time right it's a few, i mean it's not a futile effort but you sort of have to know that it's like you know after you die your nails keep growing right so what do i, what do I get wait to is that, that true I think so. That's kind of gross. Yeah, up to a certain point. Um, that's what I heard. I don't, I don't know why I know that. Um, but yeah, like, you know, you think it's the end and then things keep going on. That's a hor- it was a horrible comparison. But um, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, but I think it's also fascinating. And I think that's, sort of, oh, we know everything about each other. That's, that can, yeah, sometimes it can be boring, but sometimes it's really reassuring as well. It's like, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to go out and date. I'm so glad I'm not on okay cupid or tinder and i like i like being married <laughs> yeah right it's like, oh, that sounds exhausting it's like, i like being married because it's yeah because of that that reassurance but also because knowing that you know as long as people are still changing and evolving there's always more to discover so. and and life just is such a blur ultimately mm-hmm. and it's such a big mystery yeah i find it comforting to go through that with somebody yeah like to have like a reference yes. like you need a reference point you yeah. know like um I, I think about the character in your book i'm gonna blank on his name it's the brother character who travels the world nelson nelson yeah in a bad influence yeah yeah, yeah. and i'm like i sort of like i'm in love with nelson and <laughs> he's easy like you're like that's a good life that's like the dream life for me that i never lived was just to be like roaming the world and like being like kind of cool and finding, yeah. finding a way to make a living, but like bouncing from country to country mm-hmm. and getting that education. 
Yeah. Like a, a like a lived experiential education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean Nelson is like jack of all trades. He goes everywhere, and then his poor sister Mailing is uh, she's she's the quote unquote good child who stays at home in San Diego with the parents, and uh, and there's a lot of resentment, but also kind of grudging admiration and affection that like she wishes she could be she's kind of like him this, in a way she's kind know? of like the sister in ferris bueller's day off have you ever seen that? yes i have <laughs> but you know she doesn't get her due either um that's jennifer gray right that's dirty dancing yes. Jennifer gray yeah um i i love ferris bueller's i love i really like her i was just like oh i mean i know that feeling was like well you got away with so much because you're a boy and you're Matthew broderick but do you have a brother like that no no, I have an older brother, and um, and he's he he's not selfish or uh, or um, kind of um, free spirited in that in the way that Nelson is at all. So, um, but uh, yeah, Nelson, he's it's so interesting. So um, it's so interesting. I think they were the first person who's mentioned Nelson as like a favorite character. And I'm I was thinking back to the back to the comment that you made at the very beginning about loneliness. Like, how lonely do you think Nelson is, or do you think he doesn't think about it? Because I think he's traveling, he's, traveling. I mean, and this circles back to you as well. Even though you're not Nelson, and you live a different life and lifestyle, you're than blowing you. my cover yeah. right now. <laughs> no, but there's something inherently lonely about being expatriated. Yes, there's something inherently lonely about travel especially mm-hmm. solo travel yeah especially solo travel you know mm-hmm. like uh so yeah i would imagine but then you also wind up um you know it forces you it forces your hand unless you're like a really introverted person you wind up building friendships and having little pocket communities all over the world yeah um, i just interviewed an author named uh belen fernandez not too long ago and she's she like basically like quit the united states and went out into the world when she was like 21 and has just never stopped wow. and she makes her yeah. a living as a journalist and yeah. has a lot of problems with American imperialism. And, um, but she, I don't have any problems with American imperialism, which is why I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm really happy with the way that's going. So, uh, no, but yeah, I, I think, I think, I think you made a good point. I think sometimes that's what people need to feel like they're living and, and that's their way of connecting with people. And sometimes the deepest connections can happen um, really briefly and, you know, kind of like a firefly, you know, it's just kind of psh, like that. And so I think that's kind of really beautiful too. Um, but, um, it's like, yeah. high, it's like high highs and low lows. I feel like when you're living like that. Yeah. I think about, I think about people who, who live that kind of life and I'm not saying I'm, I'm just sort of just wondering, like, so when you were describing that nomadic life, that sort of that joyous nomadic life, um, of Nelson as well. I think about. I don't think about all the people he's they're meeting and the the you know, the new the new people and places that they're discovering. I mean, I do think about that too. But the first thing I thought of was, oh, those lonely nights in the hotel room. You know, when you've got no one but yourself to like. Oh, when there is no one to go out and get a late night drink out at the local cafe or um, there's yeah. And so I think about that and how that's also kind of beautiful as well i mean i i think everything's beautiful (laughs) (laughs) hey folks if you are a writer if you're somebody who's struggling to write if you're trying to write a book but failing if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better all of the above you know what i'm talking about 
I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. What about what about like populating these stories with characters, um, like obviously with whom you do not share direct um, corollary experience, you know, in a, in a immediate way. Like you might have, you might know of somebody or know somebody mm-hmm. who knows somebody. You've clearly yeah. are a careful observer of people, uh, as most writers are. Like, did you do? I don't know. Are you a notebook? person who's like jotting down notes as you see people in on the bus or something like that like how did you build your characters um are you thinking of any particular characters in particular oh i mean any the homeless granny yeah and uh the um feckless architect yeah (laughs) yeah um yeah i um yeah part of it is just i mean i'm just fascinated by people and i i think i aspire uh, for a long time, I aspired to be a notebook person because it just looks so cool. It sounds and, good, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and then I realised that I couldn't. My handwriting just got really shit over the years <laughs> of typing. Um, but I, I think I, I, I've, I wish I could be a little bit more cool and romantic. But I do take notes on my phone. I think a lot um, of people do. And sometimes I just won't. Like sometimes I'll, I'll encounter a situation or meet certain people and. And uh, and I I purposely don't want to write it down because I just want it to sort of fester and in, in my brain or whatever for a while and and then because I haven't decided how I how I feel about it or like I, I, sometimes it's a test like how like how long will they stay in my brain and they if they keep if it keeps coming up to me after a few weeks or a few months or even a year then it means okay. I've got to write a story. That's why. That's why it takes such a long time for me to write a story. But that's how it happens. That's how it happened with with with, with Granny. Mm, so so with the woman in the closet, which is the novella in the story. There's um, it's it's based on on the very on the, in the most superficial level. It's based on a real event. So I'd read it was about a decade ago when I was still living in. No, it must have been more than a decade ago. I think I was still living in Hong Kong. Um, I'd read online this really short news article about this um this woman this elderly woman in japan who was discovered living in this bachelor's closet and um and she'd been homeless and and i was just absolutely struck by the story and just not only the tragedy of it but also how bizarre this scenario was and i couldn't i couldn't fathom how how life had come to this you know sort of um really at the time just incredibly um incredibly sad and uh, and mysterious to me and i kept I, I i searched i scoured the internet for uh for more 
information about the story and um, I couldn't find anything. It was just the same couple of paragraphs recycled. And um, so uh, so I think, yeah, at that time, the internet wasn't what it is today. It's, um, but uh, What is it today? <laughs> you, you can't, there's so many things you can't not know, right. even if you don't want to know them. Um, like that, so... Uh, yeah, I think it was, might have been like the early 2000s, mid-2000s. I can't remember now. But I remember just sort of feeling like I'd come to, like a, I'd hit a brick wall with research. So I just so I kept thinking about her. And every time I mentioned that story to to a friend, I said, oh, did you read the article about this woman? Who's blah, blah, blah. And then they would, they would invariably they'd have the same reaction, which is this sort of kind of like a nervous laughter, like an embarrassed sort of chuckle as if they're a little bit embarrassed by her situation oh how humiliating to find yourself at the subject of this kind of story and I just thought oh wow these are people who I consider really empathetic and compassionate but they're kind of being like assholes about it so I find myself feeling really defensive about this lady and um and because I couldn't find out more about it, I just just had built this huge library of questions about her in my head and then and after a, a certain amount of time I can't remember how long I started writing things down like, oh what if she had um what if she lived in a bunch of tent villages uh because they, they they existed in Japan um at that time already what if she lived in a bunch of tent villages before she ended up in this guy's house and before the tent villages, maybe she was living where in the home situation that wasn't great for her, and she felt like that was her. So it was, it was just this um, imagined life, and then she became Granny Ng, and it got relocated to Hong Kong, and um, and set. I don't know if this was really obvious, but it was set in the near future in Hong Kong, um, and uh, yeah. So that that was something that was super. Uh, Super pulled from the, like literally ripped from the headlines, and uh, and that kind of morphed into something really long and and um, ended up being really completely fictitious. But and sometimes I think about the real woman from that story. I mean, she's probably dead by now, honestly. Uh, it made me think about my yeah. own. Like it's something that I just I guess I don't spend much time thinking about. But it's like if I live to a to be elderly mm -hmm. at some point you get to the place where you you're dependent yeah or like you know like yeah. everyone's gone i'm like i hadn't even really i hadn't considered it yeah or maybe i'd considered it before like once or twice you know in a fleeting moment mm -hmm. but you really stop and think about it like that's a terrible place to be yeah and it, it feels it feels like really unjust yes for like yes. a good person any good person to have to spend their final days alive, like in a state of, you know, isolation or mm -hmm. just kind of being uh, unwanted. Yeah. And I think she really fights against that. You know, she's really unsentimental. She doesn't let herself feel sorry for herself. She tries to make herself useful. And, um, and I think during the whole story, she's trying to, um, she's trying to, reclaim a sense of her own self i think um she didn't have the life that she wanted to have when she was a young girl or when she was a wife and or a widow and um she didn't have the relationship that she wanted to have with her son so she sort of projects a lot of this um care 
uh, onto the young man whose house she's living in. And so, um, but yeah, I think um, uh, I think it speaks to a lot of people have said that it really it strikes a chord with them because it speaks to really um, fundamental fears of abandonment and and becoming irrelevant or being seen as irrelevant. And um, yeah, it's nice to think you're yeah. going to age gracefully. And yeah. be like wise and gentle, <laughs> yeah. die peacefully in your sleep. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. think that's kind of how you just, I think most of us, that's just how we just assume things are going to go because it's too painful or uncomfortable to yeah. contemplate otherwise. I mean, some of the, like the, the women who I look up to these days are all older women, you know, like women in my yoga class who are 80 years old and doing a headstand or not able to do a headstand, but still turning up all the time. And I will go up to them and say, oh, my God, you're so graceful. Like, did you used to be a dancer or something? And I said, no, I just, I've just been doing this for the last 10 years. So they started when they were 70 and they look so amazing. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, because it makes me think, well, I want to be active. I want to be saying inappropriate things. And um, that's sort of that's. That's the diploma you get right after you reach a certain age. You can say, now you can, now you can tell piss the truth. people off. You yeah, tell the you truth don't... with impunity. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, I think, yeah, so, th- you know, that was, that's, that's, the one, that's the story in the collection that a lot of people have s- kind of highlighted as, oh, this, this one really struck a chord or they feel like it's sort of the stand or whatever. And it's a total surprise to me because I wrote this story because I didn't think anyone cared about people like Granny. And as I was writing, I thought, I'm the only one who's going to care about this character. <laughs> that I seriously thought that. And I couldn't get it published anywhere for ages because it was too long and da, 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 And then finally it found a home. But um, but it's, uh, yeah, everything is sort of a surprise. I think, it, I know, I mean, you know, when when you're writing, you're, you're really, I mean, you're not thinking about, oh, People are going to love this, right? Like, it's the best thing I've Speak ever done. Speak for yourself. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> but I think it's always, and I'm not, I'm not, this isn't false humility. It's a, it's a genuine, pleasant surprise when people say that the stories or certain characters resonated with them. It's, it's lovely. And I think it goes back to what you were saying before about just wanting to connect. I mean, you know, writing is a really lonely endeavor and you sort of trying to work stuff out and take all those demons and obsessions and preoccupations in your brain and wrestle them onto the page in a way that makes some kind of sense. And 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 then you hope that someone is going to read it and you hope that that someone who reads it isn't going to think you're, you know, a psycho <laughs> or like wasting your time or terrible writer. So, um, yeah, it's... Um, and this is my first book, and I haven't published a lot before this, and so it's, but it's, so it's yeah, it's really, it's really lovely that people have, um, people have found that the book resonates with them. So let's talk about how you work. Like, how long right. did the book take you to write in total? How many years were you working on it? So, um, as a manuscript, like trying to put together this collection as a manuscript, probably in earnest over the, I want to say about three years, two or three years, but the some of the stories. As I mentioned, some of them started a long, long time ago. Some of them were finished recently. So the stories themselves represent a big span of time, a couple of decades maybe, if you're being super uh, accurate. Um, but um, but in terms of the the manuscript itself and rewriting and editing, uh, about three years. So 
but it's really hard to give an accurate accurate answer because like like you said they they are stories that were written at different points in time and there's not one it, it isn't a novel and uh and it wasn't yeah. like some concentrated block of time where you cranked them all out like you wrote this no but there was a point a few years ago where i thought okay i've got to put this together in a collection i want them to i want yeah to put it out somehow and so i made a pact with my friend rachel kong who wrote goodbye vitamin um we at the time we lived in the same neighborhood on opposite ends of a park there was a cafe at my end so we every morning before work we would meet in the cafe and write and it would be maybe one percent social hey how are you getting tea yeah okay and then we just write 99 percent writing and it was just kind of like having a gym buddy you know so a few times a week we would do that and then over the course of that that um that time she finished her book, sold it, published it, hugely successful. Um, and I managed to finish mine and but a little bit later. So I was, she was further along in, in her process. So that really helped to kickstart this. And we were both in a similar place of having, you know, just toiling away in a dark corner for a while <laughs> and having the same sense of uh, uncertainty about our respective books. So that was really helpful. And then oh. nice, too, to be like, see that it's like possible. Like, oh, wow, this actually can lead to something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she was working on a novel and um, yeah, so, but yeah, definitely, definitely. You feel like you're not, you're not toiling alone. And then when she, I think she, her book came out a couple of years ago. So I was just so happy for her that it found a home. And um, so, yeah, it does, it does feel hopeful. It does feel hopeful. I mean, when people that you know especially people that you know have books out there um it's just it just makes things especially when it's um speaking as a it's weird to describe myself as an asian american writer with this accent but um but other asian american writers when they have books out there and and they do well it's just it's great it just opens more doors for everybody else it kind of helps to i mean i think we're a long way from normalizing um, this kind of literature, but um, and for it to not have to be its own category in a bookstore or a library or something like that. But it's it's really it's really great. Yeah. And so, what about like ritual? You talked about mm. going to this cafe and uh, writing in a, a I guess a semi routine. Like how how regimented are you? How many days a week were you <laughs> working? Or is it sporadic? Like do you work in fits and starts, or are you somebody who kind of does it every day? Um, I don't write every day. I wish I could, but I I run a nonprofit Monday to Thursday, which is what it's called Voice of Witness, and um, it's uh, we interview people who've been impacted by human rights crises, uh, mostly uh, concerned with the criminal justice system and migration and displacement. So these are oral histories edited as first person narratives, and they come out in book form. And we do educational programming around it too. So that's really, that's really. And that's cons- with Dave Eggers. The, yeah. So we're co-founders. Um, I, I'm the executive director and executive editor. So I edit the book series and raise money and you know make sure my staff are taking time off and things like that. And um, so I do that mon- Monday to Thursday, and then Fridays I write all day during the week, um, depending on what's happened the night before. I'll right in the morning as well how did this come to be this nonprofit? uh okay so um <laughs> all right this so it started off as a as a book series 
um, which was an arm of McSweeney's and uh, McSweeney's Publishing. And Dave was working on his book, What is the What, at the time, and he was in South Sudan. So his work is uh, working with Valentina Atek Deng, who is one of the quite-and-quite lost boys of Sudan. So he was back home, in, he was with him in his home village um, of Marilbai and met these women who had been recently returned to the south after spending years in uh, in captivity. Some of them had even been had children by their captors. So they'd been recently returned, and um, Dave talked to some of these women, Valentino interviewed them too, and, and they were just really shocked that there wasn't more about these, these women, um, the lost girls or women of Sudan. And so they they pledged to... So, yeah, he was finishing Valentino's book, but he also pledged to collect these women's stories, find a home for them. So that's how the idea for Voice of Witness as a as a platform for these kinds of unheard stories came initially came about. But then what ended up happening was, um, I think around the time that that was happening, Hurricane Katrina happened. And so... Um, uh, so that was the um, so that ended up being the book Voices from the Storm. I think actually before that was a book about um, David met this uh, physician who was working with exonerees, people who'd been wrongfully convicted and then exonerated. So that actually became the first book, Surviving Justice, and um, and then I joined uh, as a volunteer initially, a volunteer interviewer for the for a book called Underground America narratives of undocumented lives and so I interviewed Chinese immigrants for this book and it was incre- a really incredible experience so um, it's it was um, how do you get access to those people uh, you know what I'm saying like how, yeah. especially people who are undocumented who yeah. m- might be scared to show you know what I'm saying yeah, to be like what do you, what do you yeah. want to talk to me for you know yeah so we um, so voice and witness sort of operates on this in this mode called the chain of trust so if you you have um, normally someone who's pitching a book idea to voice the witness. They already have a track record of working with within the communities, or they're from the communities that are the focus of that book. So, um, so the interviewers on that project were some of them are lawyers, some of them were documentary filmmakers, some of them are journalists. So, uh, or some of them know someone who's working for an organisation that provides direct services like legal services for example to undocumented um immigrants so um so you know after you've interviewed one and they've had a good experience with you they'll say oh you know you you know who you should talk to you should talk to so and so and so so who works that blah 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 um and um and that was just such an amazing eye-opening experience for me and uh and but at the same about that time we were working uh was a volunteer group and um and I, I got involved because my former creative writing professor the writer peter orner was spearheading that project He's been a guest on this show oh great yeah yeah um and um and uh so we were working on that for a while and there was no there was no budget where there was i think there was three tape recorders from radio shack but we were all about 15 of us fighting over this these three tape recorders we were we fanned out across the country interviewing people from all different countries doing you know uh, living all different walks of life in the US and um and it came to the US for you know for many 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 different reasons and um and uh, and we all were using using air miles or sleeping on friends couches and it was such an amazing experience i think i worked on that book on that book project for a year and 
I think around Dave and I and the other uh, founder, uh, Lola Volan, we came to the same conclusion around the same time that this can't just be sustained by volunteers alone. It's too important to not put real funding and infrastructure and staffing behind it. Because at the time, it was just volunteers, one editor from McSweeney's, Chris Yang, who was doing it on top of his other editorial duties. And um, and it just wasn't enough to scrape it together on a shoestring. So I joined as um, its first executive director. Uh, and we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary, And so well, you, you fundraise, like you ask for people to donate fundraise yeah this was around the time this was like to late 2008 early 2009 which was a terrible time to start a non-profit no it's perfect yeah <laughs> um i gave myself 18 months i kind of came back on i sort of i was already back in hong kong by that point because my student visa had run out and and um but i i had such an incredible experience volunteering i thought oh, i really want to make this something i'll give it 18 months and then so, you know, just knocking a lot of doors, a lot of people say no, a lot of people say, said, oh, the work sounds amazing, but hey, we just lost all our money in the crash, or we've lost our endowment, or we're not taking on any new grantees at the moment, but um, when you get one small grant, then that leads to another and leads to another, and, and then within that first 18 months, we'd hired another fundraising person and launched an education program, and then it just grew legs from there. So, yeah, it's kind of incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. But that's a big reason why I didn't write for a really long time as well, because right. <laughs> it took all my time and energy. But it was amazing because it, it managed to combine all my, uh, these, you know, these passions of mine, uh, interviewing and uh, education. I used to be a teacher and, uh, and also combined journalism. It's like journalism with a cup of tea in a way. Uh, does yeah. it feed your fiction? Yeah, um, you know, I didn't think it did. I sort of kept the two separate from each other for a long time. I think, I think somehow I thought I, out of a sense of maybe misplaced protectiveness, like I didn't, I didn't want to write about um, about a young refugee mother from South Sudan. I didn't want to write about uh, people's experiences that I hadn't personally lived because I just felt after having worked so closely with these people, we call them narrators. Uh, the you know, the whole point of voice witness is that we're not telling people's stories for them. And, and my feeling was that no one can tell the story of their life better than they can, right? The person who's lived it and they're the author, they are, they are the authority of their life. And so I felt really like it wasn't my place. I'm not saying other writers shouldn't write about, other people from different cultures, uh, different cultures, but for me, I just felt it wasn't my place. So I kind of kept that on this side of the line, and on the other side of the line was me and my own funny little obsessions and things. But then, but then, um, I guess more recently, just talking about the book and people asking about the two and how they inform each other, it's become it's become really clear to me that. Um, my work with Voice of Witness has has informed my writing in the more um, in a more subtle way, and just in terms of being being more generous and open minded about the kind of people that I choose to write about. Um, there are some characters in my stories that aren't super sympathetic, but who you but 
um, you know, because em- empathy isn't something that just happens to you. You have to decide to be empathetic, right? You ha- it's active. It's an active choice. And so I think that's something that I brought over from my work with Voice of Witness. I was going to say, like, I-, I totally get, like, they're the ones telling their stories. You're not going to just, like, lift it and reproduce it somehow in fiction. But how could it not have an effect like a deep effect on you to to do that kind of work and to, yeah. hear, and to hear those you know story after story. A yeah, lot, a I mean, lot of that stuff is difficult, right? Yeah, and you know, part of the yeah, definitely, and part of the um, like when I'm editing those narratives in the moment, I have this very clinical editor's brain. Um, but then when I think about it afterwards, or when I'm describing uh, some of the narratives that I've just worked on to someone else. It, you know, I can feel the emotions come up. I can, you know, someone's all like burst into tears, take a walk around the block just to, because it, you know, it really goes in deep. And, um, and so maybe that was another reason why I wanted to keep it in its own area as well, because it's, it really does take, I mean, for someone just listening and working on editing the stories, it takes a lot out of me. That's like one fraction of what it must have been like to actually live that, live through those experiences. But, um, but you're one of the, um, you know, one of the goals of Voice of Witness, besides having, uh, giving, giving, uh, giving space and and room for these otherwise rarely heard voices to to uh, to be heard, and for people whose experiences are reflected to um, to see themselves in a book, in a classroom curricula, maybe in the media, broader media. Um, the other goal of of the work is so that. People who might think, oh, human rights story, oh, feels like homework, that they actually get to um, overcome that through through just the um, the power of a personal story, the immediacy of it. And it's not surrounded by loads of kind of wonky or scholarly you know, noise around. Not to say that's not valuable, but it's this immediacy. Like, hopefully we, we edit the stories and conduct the interviews in a way where it really feels like once it's on the page you really feel like you're sitting with that person having a cup of tea and they're telling you about their life story what do you do with the so, audio why don't you make a podcast <laughs> well um because of the because of the many of the narrators that we interview because of their circumstances they could be undocumented they could be um still in prison there's there's often um a safety issue so we have to change names sometimes locations and we edit out a lot so a typical interview might take place over several months even a year several years sometimes how, how many hours and, uh, oh god i know it, it can it can be up to it can be something like a hundred page transcript something like that right. um and then we edit that down into a 20 page a paperback 20 page um uh, narrative and so there's a lot that's cut out a lot that's organized like the words are the speaker's words and the intention is the speaker's intention and we, we make sure that's the case by giving showing the narrators a draft before publication and at any point that they want to see the their narrative draft um and they can say oh well you know i didn't uh, i didn't quite mean it like that or you know, I talked about this argument that I had with my husband and I'd rather cut that out, so that's fine. But because the audio is so, like, I mean, if you try to 
to connect what ends up on the page with the audio source. It's, I've done that kind it's, of work yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot it's, of work. It's so laborious. And, and also, so, so, so there's, yeah, so the safety issue, so they use their real names, they use their, they use other people's real names, and sometimes that ends up looking very different on the page, but also, um, it's rare to get just, um, you know, to be able to piece together five minutes or three minutes of audio that reflects the, uh, the the power and the coherency that's in an edited narrative. So we we treat the the written um, the written form of the oral history interview as the ultimate medium because that's one where there's you know, editing has happened and the narrator has approved it. With audio, when, when we do audio, it's usually um, in an interview, sort of an interview that's talking about the process of sharing their story, or maybe they'll be reading an excerpt or something like that. But um, yeah, we um, and we we do we do try and sort of cut little bits out from the raw interview um, audio when we can. You know, we ask all our interviews to use like you know, make sure that there's no. Uh, uh, there's not too much ambient noise and um so that we can use it for those purposes but it's not our priority so it's more people, of a bonus if we can and if people want to check this out where do they go if they want to donate yeah um they can go to our website which is voiceofwitness.org org and th- then there are books for sale yeah you can order books directly from the website um our most recent book was released this past april called Solito Solita, Youth Re- Crossing Borders with Youth Refugees from Central America. Our books are published by Haymarket. And um, and that book is just, I mean, it's incredible. Um, it's uh, it's travelled far and wide. Uh, the two young people from the book, um, Soledad and Gabriel from Honduras, they've done maybe 40, 50 events since the spring. There's talking to so many different so many different audiences, um, and uh, some yeah, it's just incredible. I would just I'll just leave it there because it's uh, yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. Wow, as but- a really really powerful antidote to all the crap that's this hateful, crappy rhetoric that's being spewed right now. So let's get. I want to get back to you. Um, because you've lived all over the world. Because I'm getting too angry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, trust me, I'm right there with you. Um, but you have lived uh, all over the all over the place. You grew up in the UK, you said, in, in yes. London? Uh in a small suburb outside London, yeah. Okay, so what brought your family from China to London? So my my parents uh, came from Hong Kong, and it's they were economic migrants. So uh, my dad went over first in the 60s and then my mum followed um, some years after. But yeah, my dad was part of this wave of young men from the New Territories in Hong Kong, which is more of the rural, sort of northern part, close to China. And um, he was trained as an electrician. He um, was quite good at it too. And he couldn't get couldn't get work. And that was the situation of many young men at that time. He was 21, I think, when he went to England. And um, at the time, the... Uh, you know, immigration wasn't wasn't too hard. You could get a letter from someone from the who was like a quote unquote cousin from the village who was working in a in a restaurant in England and say, Yeah, I'll vouch for this person. You should let him come in and so it was it wasn't too hard. 
and, uh, and then my mum followed some several years later. So it's economic reasons. And, um, and yeah, it's, uh, and I'm, I'm, no matter how weird it was to grow up in, uh, um, in that kind of place at that time, I'm eternally grateful to my parents because it's, uh, I mean, having a British passport is, is uh, as opposed to a Hong Kong passport or a Chinese passport, I, I get to go to different places like with relative ease. I recognize how lucky I am. And, um, and when I, when I first, so I'd, I'd gone, the first time I was back in Hong Kong, that, that I'd visited Hong Kong was as part of a family holiday. I was 12 or something at the time. And I saw how my cousins, who were similar age to me, or friends of the family of similar age to me, lived quite different lives. And uh, how so? Um, uh, well, they um, the economic situation for a start. We were working class. We were poor. You know, we couldn't afford vacations. We, you know, um, slept three to three siblings to a room and. Um, and my dad worked in a factory, um, but uh, but just the fact that we got to go to uh, we got to go to university. Uh, I mean, I I guess I'm thinking about the US as well. You know, I, I grew up at a time where I could go to university for free, uh, more or less. You know, a little bit of student loan debt, but not not a lot. Um, later, it was more. I think it was more when I went back to Hong Kong as a as an adult after college that I noticed just how there were lots of differences between the way that I moved in the world to, or in my world to how my cousins or my friends who had grown up there. Um, just, just things like, you know, I remember my friends were telling me, or my cousins telling me, oh, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're 27 and you're female and you haven't got married yet, you're considered on the shelf. Or the gender gender roles were a little, gender expectations were a lot more rigid. Then um, my gay friends wouldn't didn't feel like they could well they couldn't hold hands walking down the street. Um, and and I I taught for a few years in Hong Kong as well, and I just felt so my heart went out to the students because it was in the government school, and the the oh god I mean you you get homework starting from the age of three you know it's just ridiculous so there was all these things combined just made me feel like well my upbringing wasn't perfect by any means but you know it's could uh, have been worse could have been so much worse and I had so many opportunities for me just being in Hong Kong as someone who could speak English who had uh, a degree from an English uni- I mean it's an art degree like you know where did you, where did you go to school um, I went to the University of Northumbria in Newcastle which is in the northeast of England and uh, I got a fine art degree and um, yes uh, you know as far as being the child of uh, Chinese were you, immigrant were you born in England <laughs> I was born and raised in England yeah you were born okay yeah okay when, 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 when we're little my, my parents would say yeah so we've got four children and it'd be great if, if you know some of you or one of you could be like a doctor doctors first lawyer can't be either of those um the, an accountant you just want you to be stable you know all of that stuff so um yeah, so I got a fine art degree and <laughs> then an MFA in creative writing. Yeah. Where did you get your MFA? At San Francisco State. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. So you grew up in, uh, born and raised in London, 
go to school in this like suburban town outside of London. Well, I was raised in that suburban town as well. And yeah. 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 But was there, um, like, is there a diaspora there of Chinese, uh, immigrants or were you like, did you, like, I'm trying to get a sense of like, um, your sense of identity as yeah. a child in yeah. the England. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry for making that face. Um, the, the, basically, um, it was a really small town outside of London and, Mine was one of two Chinese families that it was so undiverse that basically the high school that I went to, everyone knew who I was and my sisters, like they, they knew that little, yeah. And, um, and so, um, yeah, it was, um, it was, you, you didn't, you didn't see a lot of people who looked like you, me. And, uh, but we went to Chinese schools on Sundays in, we went, took the tube into London um, every Sunday, and we'd go to this Chinese school in this dank basement that smelled a bit of, I don't know, old cabbage and a bit wee, a bit of wee, <laughs> with, um, I think it was the Chinese Chamber of Commerce, just thinking, oh, God, the children born here are just going to be completely illiterate and uh, Chinese illiterate. So uh, they started the Chinese school, and that was where I met other Chinese kids. And... Um, and then I felt lucky again because loads of these Chinese kids, their parents had takeaway restaurants or you know, sit-down restaurants and they had to work. The kids had to work Friday nights, weekends, didn't have um, the social life that their peers had. And I had a Saturday job. My dad worked in a factory. My mum uh, was a dressmaker. I had a Saturday, I had Saturday jobs. I had pocket money. Um Spend it all on records, going into concerts, you know, going to London, going to concerts and things like that. Um, I felt really free by comparison, and um, so I felt really, really lucky, really lucky that my parents weren't super. Um, they didn't particularly pressure us. I think they were just too busy trying to survive and put food on the table. But I think also they felt a bit unqualified to have any opinion about what subjects we should choose at school at a level so on i think we just they just somehow trusted that we would figure it out maybe um that's not a bad way to be yeah I mean, also like- they knew that we were really like they're raising their girls in this western society they're going to be a lot more bloody minded and strong-headed than than maybe if they'd raised us in hong kong i, I don't know sometimes i do wonder oh, what, my, what would my life be like if i'd grown up in in Hong Kong instead. I probably would have gone to uh, college in uh, in the States or something. Yeah. Had you grown up in Hong Kong? Yeah. Yeah. I'd probably be like, oh, so what's this TV show called Friends? And, <laughs> you, know, you know, just, yeah. So, so I'm constantly thinking about, uh, I mean, I've talked about some of the, the characters in the stories as being almost like, oh, so what if, what if this character was born in, in this time period and this location instead of you know what actually happened they would have been ended up as this character in this other story so i think about um i think about the characters almost like possible reincarnations of each other or alternate versions of each other in the same way that i mean we all are to some degree (laughs) well and there's so much so much that happens in our lives is total chance yeah yeah, yeah. So it really, it really pisses me off when you get these sort of, you know, these people say, "Oh, well, I got where I am today because uh, I'm really smart and etc." And uh, yeah, that could be a degree 
truth to that, but also, you know, it also depends on who your daddy was or who your mum was and being white or not white, male or female or gay or straight, whatever, you know. So people can be a bit disingenuous about that. And um, I can't remember where I heard this. Uh, it might have been a stand-up comic. It might have been Joe Rogan, actually. I, don't, I can't remember. Don't quote me on that. But someone said, someone said something like, uh, wouldn't it have been so nice if we, when we meet a stranger, if we treat them as if they are reincarnations of ourselves wouldn't wouldn't the way that we approach these people and interact with them be so much more tender than how we move through the world now i thought yeah that's not bad and i kind of take that attitude with um with uh with the characters in my book but also with the people that we interview with through voice of witness as well it's like um this person fleeing uh, from their country of origin, trying to find refuge. That they're, they're not. I mean, that that could have that could be me or you. It's just complete chance that. Um, and really, that is like, not. it was me, but it was my great grandfather. Yes. You know. Yes. Like if you, if you track back through anyone's lineage far enough, you're going to find all sorts of stories. Um, at, you know, at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So um, what about moving? Cause so you, you grew up in England, you go to college in England, you get your fine arts degree. It doesn't sound like you were thinking of being a writer at I that point. I wasn't thinking of much, yeah. honestly. <laughs> but then you decide you're going to move to Hong Kong? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to um, I wanted to connect with my roots, man. Yeah. Um, I did. I really did. Um, and, did uh, you speak Chinese? or? Yeah, I speak Cantonese. Okay. Yeah. So you um, like, grew up in a, like a bilingual... Like your parents, do you speak well, it at home? We and- spoke we spoke Cantonese at home, um, English outside the home. My siblings and I spoke, uh, someone spoke Chinglish, you know, a combination of the two. And, um, and yeah. Uh, sorry, what was the... What well, was the no, I, just, I think like moving to Hong Kong to connect with your roots, I would imagine yeah. growing up... Um, you know, like that in England, yeah. but in, um, you know, like a kind of a culturally uprooted situation, yes. Hong Kong and, uh, like the land of your origins must have held like a pretty high place in your imagination. Well, yeah. Also we got, you know, um, I got to experience Hong Kong also through popular culture as well. We would watch TV shows and movies and, and, um, and yeah, I mean, I have this abiding memory of watching TV shows that set in contemporary times where someone, one character were meeting another character at the airport and my my family and I would laugh all the time at how shoddy the set design looked. It looks like, oh, the walls look like they're made out of cardboard. This is so funny, you know. Um, and then when we got to Hong Kong, this was at the time where it was still the airport, Kai Tak Airport was right in the middle of the Kowloon um so uh and uh you know to the point where as you're as you're coming into hong kong when you're landing you you'll glance out the window and you can see people in their apartment buildings like brushing their teeth or putting food on the table and uh so we arrived at when well, i think it was the family holiday when we first arrived in hong kong at kai tak airport we looked around and we thought, oh, my God, it actually looks like it did on TV. It looks like a badly designed TV set. Um, and now and then I got a shutdown. Now the airport on 
Lantau is like super slick and shiny. But um, yeah, it really, it, it, I was just really, really curious to see what it was like and knowing that I had relatives out there as well. Who, it didn't feel like it was uh, this this sort of scary unknown. It's like, yeah, you know, uncle so-and-so can put me up or auntie so-and-so can let me sleep on in their room. Um, so that was really, really lovely. And I had no, I had no plan about how long I'd stay there or what I was going to do there. And I just sort of... Um, yeah, so, uh, every summer at Voice of Witness, we have interns coming in, and at some point, I always take them out to lunch or tea, whatever, and I say, ask me anything you want. And invariably, they'll ask me, can you talk about your career track? And I just love <laughs> I thought, uh, So imagine a pinball table, and it's kind of ding, 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 ding. It, it's just, I really, I could not, I'd, I'd be like the worst career counselor ever, because I, I would just say, yeah, you know, just do whatever if you can. <laughs> follow you your know. instincts. Follow your instincts. Don't, you know, make sure you can always pay your own bills, but follow your instinct. No, so. but you said you taught over there. Yes. You taught yes. in school. Like what, what? Yeah, I taught in a, uh, first I was tutoring um, and um, little kids uh, privately. And then I found a job at this um, this. There's, there's a government school. It's an all-girls Catholic school, um, which is hilarious because I'm an atheist. And um, uh, but it was it was really really wonderful. And because I was a subject teacher, I was teaching English, you know, um, reading, writing, all that stuff. It's um, because I was a subject teacher. I didn't, as opposed to a homeroom teacher, I got to teach from the P1 to the P6s, which is six years old to. 12 going on 13 so a white in the same day I could get like a stroppy almost teenager to really angelic um space cadet six-year-old and um and everything in between and so it was really I loved it I really loved it um and um but but before that I was um it was around the time of when the handover when Hong Kong was going back to China and before I got that that steady job i was hanging around with a bunch of american and canadian journalists who um like the, U- the usa today chicago how did Tribune, you meet them hanging around okay <laughs> hanging around, going as to, one does going to bars <laughs> you know if you if you um the ex- the expat community in hong kong at that time i think still to this day they tend to sort of go to the same kinds of places and if you're an overseas Chinese and you're going to gravitate to other people too also speak English and or overseas Chinese and so I think I knew someone who worked with a journalist at the Washington Post and they were looking for someone who was bilingual um uh my Chinese isn't that great but it's okay good enough uh, and who knew their way around. So bilingual, knew their way around a lot of free time. So they wanted a fixer, basically. I said, well, I've, I'm one out of those three. I had a lot of free time. So <laughs> I basically just uh, said, oh, I, I want to interview someone who owns like a goldfish shop or something. Um, I want to, And then I'll find a goldfish shop in Mongkok and take them there and interpret. And then, and then I was doing some interviews on my own, just kind of human interest stories but really focused around the handover and people's anxieties around or excitement around Hong Kong returning to mainland China and so um yeah it's kind of funny talking about that now in light of everything that's going on in yeah what do you make of that I mean have you 
been I mean, obviously you've been following you have family there yeah yeah it's um i'm you know my heart hurts <laughs> so much um Yeah, it's really, it's really heartbreaking. But um, my husband was there recently, and he was staying in a hotel in Mongkok, and it was right in the middle of it all. And he was there during um, the National Week holidays. Um, uh, and so... Sorry, the National Day holidays. So for that entire week, they were there were protests happening every day. So I got it's so interesting when you just write that. This was he'd send me photos and updates from you know just from outside his hotel room, basically, and um, and it's I got such a, a more acute sense of um, of what was going on there than I've been getting from from um, from the, from the news. Uh, I've been WhatsApping with some family members out there as well, and you know everyone's worried. Everyone is a little. I kind of reminds me a bit of the way that Trump's election divided a lot of families, right? Where um, my relatives out there, they, I mean, their their start their position on this just occupies so many different points along the spectrum. Can, can you, so, for people listening who might not have a clue, yeah, can you describe the basic situation? Uh, yeah, I'll try to. Um, so um, I think it's I think the protests that there have been protests going on in Hong Kong for the past five months, and originally that was triggered by this new um, this extradition law that was being proposed by the Hong Kong government, which meant that you could anyone who was um, I'm not sure about the scope of um, the, the, the actual, you know, specific legal scope, but basically, you could be you could be a Chinese person in Hong Kong or in Taiwan or somewhere else, and um, you could be extradited back to China. And uh, and why that is a really bad thing for for people in general is because the the uh, the the justice system in China is incredibly opaque and. Um, and labyrinthine and Kafkaesque, and um, this is a, this is a this is a kind of atmosphere where uh, just a few years ago, um, a bookseller in Hong Kong got disappeared because he was selling books that happened to be critical of the administration in Beijing of the of the regime, and um, so it's um, and. After Hong Kong, after Hong Kong went back to uh, China in '97, it, it's uh, it's been it's supposed to have been operating under a different constitution called the Basic Law. So it's operating under this understanding of one country, two systems. So um, so in Hong Kong, there's religious freedom. You can there's supposed to be freedom of speech, freedom uh, freedom of assembly, and uh, and despite that separate constitution there's been increasing uh increasingly disturbing uh evidence of um china trying to encroach on on those on those rights so um so originally 
the protests in Hong Kong started because of that proposed extradition bill, which has since been scrapped. But then these other demands have come through as well. So some, so the protests are about police brutality, but also um, universal suffrage, and um, and so it's it's been. I mean, you know, uh, the. Uh, Subway stations have been set on fire and trains have been spray painted in black and people have, uh, people have been, um, there's been violence uh, committed by police and there's been violence committed against police officers and it's just incredibly heartbreaking Um, and uh, businesses have closed down, they can't, not sustainable anymore and uh, it's just, yeah, it's just absolutely heartbreaking. Um, and no matter the people that I've, that I've, um, whose opinion that I'm aware of, at least, uh, even if they agree slash disagree with a protest, pro or against police, everyone is worried. Everyone is worried. Um, and uh, yeah, and some, you know, on, I've heard some people say, I don't know whether it's hyperbolic of them to stay but some people say oh yeah Hong Kong is falling you know it's always fallen already just you know night and day from when from my experience living there it's it has this um I mean it's 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 troubling just period but it's also because it's such a contrast to to the the general at least the overall experience of living in Hong Kong which is an incredibly safe place and you know people like the German Germany has a has a the, the stereotype of Germany is that the trains always run on time. That's Hong Kong, you know. That's like everything, like all the public transit systems, just uh, clean, safe, efficient. And um, when they closed, you know, I was talking about the um, the bad TV set design, old airport versus the new shiny one. When when the transition happened between the when the old airport closed down and the new one opened i think it was a day where they stalled i think they they, they it only took a day for them where they actually ceased operations like it was just like a smooth handover and um i guess i'm sort of drawing on not the not the greatest examples but um but it was you know it's a it's just uh so on the one hand i'm you know feel incredibly proud that people out on the streets protesting also don't necessarily agree with all the methods that um, that people are using to to um, to keep this issue um, at the front of people's minds, and, um, and I think also you know the from from my very limited perspective out here, my impression is that the majority of protesters want you know are do are are conducting their protests peacefully. They don't want violence. And I, everything just, we get on the, see in the news are the most extreme. I'm not saying they're not happening, but they are the most extreme um, instances. I got to say, on my social, you know, I get it all from social media mostly, but like I found it as an American who has significant differences with the current regime. Yeah. <laughs> uh, inspiring. Mm-hmm. The number of people in the streets the peacefulness, like, like huge volumes of people and moving quietly even, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's, I'm like, wow, like we are not seeing a similar level of engagement here. So there's, I'm always like tweeting, like, 
we need to be more like Hong Kong. Like we need to get, you know. Yeah. And the big difference is that we don't have this huge, I mean, we don't have a country like China breathing down. I mean, we have our administration. This is an administration that we're, you know, fighting against. But the difference is that people in Hong Kong are really feeling the squeeze. They're really feeling it. And so that, you know, difference, I think one of the big differences between like why people here aren't, uh, aren't motivated or energized in the same way is that that sense of the stakes are quite different. Like, I mean, I mean, the stakes are high, sure, but, um, you know, reproductive rights, immigrant rights, LGBT rights, they're all under threat right now. But, um, but the fact is that we don't have a con- incredibly powerful country like China breathing down our backs with a threat of uh, military intervention, possibly, maybe not. I don't know. But um, well, and you also like yeah. Hong Kong is a much smaller place. Yes, and it's concentrated population, and so people can get out into the streets and make their mm-hmm. presence felt. Yeah, you can do the same thing in certain spots in the states, but it's mm-hmm. obviously this sprawling. Yeah, 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 and you know that's that's one of the that's one of the reasons why social that's that's one of the big pluses about social media is that you can. You can create movements and galvanize people through that, and um, even if you can't, even, even with a country that's so huge and um, and uh, sprawling, yeah, I'm running out of articulate words. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it strikes me maybe though one day there'll be a, a you know you can do a oral history. Have you ever thought of that? Like it seems like that would be interesting. Of Hong Kong. Yeah, well, yeah, of like yeah. what's going on. Yeah, that would be amazing. Um, Well, it's been great Mm. to meet you. And I want to congratulate you again on your story collection, um, which is lovely. Are you working on anything else? Are you you just enjoying the publication (laughs) of this? Do you have like a novel in a drawer? Like what's going on with the... I have a... I'm working on a novel, my first novel. No idea what I'm doing, but it's fun. How far do you how, like? Are you, how far into it are you? I'm, I'm still working on the first draft, so I don't know. I mean, I've got maybe 150, 170 pages. Probably cut. I probably cut 90 percent of that, but I just want to get it all out right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I won't ask you what it's about because I know writers are superstitious. No, I don't really care. But not for not for this podcast. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll get and tell you <laughs> after the. the the tape recorders off okay well it's uh it's nice to meet you thanks for coming over and talking thanks so much brad it's been such a pleasure talking with you okay there you go guys that is mimi Locke, and her new collection is called last of her name available from kaya press you can find her online at mimi you can also check out the nonprofit that she runs again it is called voice of witness and the website is voiceofwitness.org. Mimi Locke, last of her name, available now. Go get your copy. Go get it. Go read it. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music there at the top, uh, you know, right at the top of the interview. If you would like to write to me, if you want to share your thoughts on anything, my email address is letters at otherppl.com. And if you would like to support this program, tip your server, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget about the Other People app. It's free. The Other People with Brad Listy app. It's available wherever apps 
are available. Next up on the uh, program is my conversation with Adrienne Brodeur. She wrote a memoir called Wild Game, My Mother, Her Lover, and Me. It is available from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It was the official October pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, and I just had a chance to talk with her when she came through Los Angeles on book tour. It's one of the most critically acclaimed uh, memoirs of the year. And it was, a, it was one of these books that, you know, there was this massive auction. It's a great story. And uh, I had a nice time with Adrian. You're going to hear that in the next episode. Until then, I hope you're doing okay. I hope that uh, you're holding it together. We're living through some crazy times. Are you paying attention? Is it leaving a mark? Just gotta breathe.